Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This, of course, is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth. And before we get into everything today, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to it right now. We're on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod, and I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch available at poppantheonpod.com, and our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where we produce at least three bonus episodes of this show per month, is available at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Also, Gorgeous Gorgeous LA is happening on Friday, September 29th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. This, of course, is my queer pop party where I play all your favorite pop music all night. And if you want to come to that, you can buy tickets at the link in the show notes of this episode, or I'll post the links in our bio on social media. And finally, we have our first live show coming up in Pasadena on November 2nd at the Crawford. This is in conjunction with LAist, and we'll be talking about Britney's memoir, her music, and her legacy. I have an incredible panel of guests joining me there, and we're going to do a little Britney dance party, gorgeous, gorgeous install after the show. So if you want to come to Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's memoir, Music and Legacy at the Crawford on November 2nd in Pasadena. You can click the link in the show notes of this episode to buy tickets for that. All right, so this is the final installment of our Epic Prince trilogy. This has been such an incredible journey. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes. In this particular episode, we're going to be covering all of Prince's work in the 90s, 2000s through his death in 2016. We're going to be talking about his label drama, his name change to a symbol, the glut of music he produced, some of the highlights, some of the lowlights, and what his legacy and influence means. We're going to spend some time talking about how Prince impacted pretty much every pop star in some way that has come after him and discuss his legacy. So without further ado, here is the final installment of our Prince series. On his 35th birthday in 1993, Prince told the world he was changing his name to an unpronounceable symbol, quote, whose meaning has not been identified. His new visual moniker was a combination of the gender signs for man and woman, but Prince was not changing his gender identity. He was hoping to change the music industry, or at least change his own record deal. The previous year, he'd signed a new contract, touted as the biggest in the music industry at the time, reportedly $100 million in total with a $10 million advance for each new project, but he quickly found himself unhappy with the terms. Prince had been a reliable hitmaker for Warner Brothers for the entirety of the 1980s. By 1990, he had amassed nine platinum records and 13 top 10 singles. And just two years prior to signing this new deal and following the relative underperformance of his film and soundtrack for 1990s Graffiti Bridge, had released 1991's Diamonds and Pearls, a genre-spanning multi-platinum comeback album which featured two top 10 hits, including the glam rock stomper Creed which would become his last number one. Cream. 
Prince had made millions for Warner Brothers, and he wanted what he felt was his due, rights to his masters and control over their distribution. In 1993, he started appearing in concerts with the word slave written across his face and talking to the press about his dissatisfaction with the label. Warner had its own concerns. Prince was always prolific, but in the early 90s, the pace at which he was producing music had become a major problem. The label had released Prince albums nearly annually through the 80s, but in this period, he'd begun churning out three to four albums every year. At that time, Prince told Vibe he was only giving his label songs from the vault and would release new material through live shows, saying, quote, music should be free. Warner Brothers had other ideas. The company shut down Prince's Paisley Park Records, ending the distribution channel through which he'd produced music for other artists, and cautioned him about flooding the market. Changing his name into a symbol, meanwhile, had turned Prince into a punchline. While he'd always traded in mystique, Prince's reputation in the 90s turned from eccentric genius to infamous oddball. He spent the middle part of the decade operating without a manager, in constant turmoil with the label, and the butt of late-night jokes. In the fall of 1994, Prince attempted to shift the focus back to his music with his final project under his name, the greatest hits collection, the hits and the b-sides. He then struck an agreement with Warner Brothers to release the ballad The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, independently via a new label he created, NPG. The song peaked at number three and went gold, but it was his final top ten single. Prince, or by then the artists formerly known as, released four more albums with Warner Brothers despite high tensions. 1994's Come and the Black Album, 1995's The Gold Experience, and 1996's Chaos and Disorder, each among his worst-selling efforts since the early 80s. In his battle for creative and commercial freedom, Prince eventually got his way and did exactly what the label had warned him against. He flooded the market. In the second half of the 90s, Prince released seven albums mixed into box sets and packaged with previously bootlegged materials. Along the way, his commercial fortune spiraled and a critical consensus developed that his best days were behind him. Though it came at breakneck speed and had a career-dulling impact, Prince's approach to releasing music in the 90s presaged many methods pop stars would later embrace. He sold digital downloads on his websites and super-served his biggest fans with a myriad of different editions of songs. He even set up his own phone number to sell albums by mail. At one point, Prince claimed he intended to re-record his entire back catalog a la Taylor Swift, but his plans didn't come to fruition. His 90s output is a mixed bag. Each record has gems, some more than others, but it felt increasingly like an archaeological dig to find them, especially when certain of these records, like 1996's Emancipation, would arrive 36 songs deep. By the end of the 90s, it had become difficult for the average listener to parse through all this material, and most pop fans had tuned him out. At the end of that decade, Prince attempted a comeback, signing a deal with Arista and releasing 1999's Rave Unto the Joy Fantastic, a set of songs on which he duetted with contemporary stars like Gwen Stefani, Eve, and Sheryl Crow. When that record wasn't the juggernaut anyone hoped for, Prince newly converted as a devout Jehovah's Witness and thus taming many of his signature on-record sexual proclivities, spent the early 2000s making insular strange larks from album length 
length religious parables to jazz exercises to instrumental suites and releasing them independently, often through his website, to little fanfare. Ever the mercurial being, Prince did make one final attempt to return to mass public consciousness in the mid-2000s with his double platinum 28th studio album, The Back to Basics Musicology in 2004, and its follow-up, the chart-topping 3121 in 2006, his first number one album since 1989 and the only in his lifetime to debut at the top of the chart. In 2007, Prince took a victory lap with a legacy-defining Super Bowl performance, widely considered to be one of the greatest of all time. Though he never again returned to the top of the charts, Prince sold out arenas and continued consistently releasing albums through the end of his life in 2016, when he died at his beloved Paisley Park mansion of a fentanyl overdose. Prince has sold 100 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling artists of all time, and is largely thought of as one of the greatest musicians and stars of the modern era. He has 12 platinum singles and seven multi-platinum albums, he has five number one hits in the U.S. and 15 worldwide number one hits, 19 top 10 hits, and four number one albums. Prince has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the UK Music Hall of Fame, and the Black Music and Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame. He's won seven Grammy Awards, seven Brit Awards, six American Music Awards, four VMAs, a Billboard Icon Award, a Golden Globe, and an Academy Award. Rolling Stone included three of his albums, Dirty Mind, Purple Rain, and Sign of the Times, on their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Often pegged as one of the most influential pop stars in history, he has been cited as an influence by no less than Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, Bruno Mars, Rihanna, Alicia Keys, Usher, The Weeknd, Lady Gaga, Lord, Andre 3000, Frank Ocean, Miguel, Robin, Bono, and countless others. Here with me for the conclusion of our Prince trilogy is writer and critic Miles Marshall Lewis. Okay, so I'm here with pop culture critic and author of the recent Kendrick Lamar bio, Promise That You'll Sing About Me, out now, Miles Marshall Lewis. Miles, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. We've been deep diving on Prince for the last few weeks. Honestly, it's been one of the most rewarding artist deep dives I've taken in the two plus years of making the show. Obviously, there's podcasts upon podcasts upon podcasts you could make about this man. Actually, Rich Jezwiak, who was on our last episode, talked about how you could almost do the top line episodes on Prince and then an entire sort of below the surface episode related to each episode. <laughs> exploring all of the lore and the b-sides and the discards i compared it to reading ulysses in college you read <laughs> ulysses and then you also have to read a book that explains ulysses to you yes i feel like prince's career is like that we're going to talk about a period of prince's career that when russ and i were planning this series we had a bit of a hard time getting our arms around because it's an incredibly prolific and long period in prince's career but one of increasing commercial decline and increasing insularness in the way he went about making music for the most part, with exceptions. Obviously, if you're dealing with 20 plus albums, there's going to be every different kind of thing happening. Sure. But it was a bit hard to get our arms around. I wonder, overall, in thinking about Prince post his 80s imperial peak, post the Batman soundtrack, just to sort of get us into this conversation, 
How do you think about the 90s, 2000s, up through Prince's untimely passing? How do you think about this body of music overall as it compares to the more canonical imperial phase records that most casual fans associate with Prince? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of an underrated period. Prince's pop stardom entering the 1990s was at its apex. In 1989, he had a comeback number one album with the Batman soundtrack. That Dance was the number one single. It was a multi-platinum album. And so the 90s were sort of his to lose. And I'm not going to say he lost it. (laughs) There were things that worked for him during that decade. There were things that didn't work for him. There are questions about him being past his prime because the Love Sexy album and the tour were commercial flops. But his relevance and his vitality were still pretty uncontested going into the 90s. He had a hardcore fan base. He could churn out hits like Michael Jackson, whatever he wanted to, you know, that he was after something of a higher artistic value, right? His impact on artists that were coming in his wake, like George Michael and Lenny Kravitz and Terrence Trent Darby was pretty uncontestable. Even Madonna tapped him for 1989's Like a Prayer. They recorded Love Song together Mm -hmm. and he played some uncredited rock guitar on her album. So he was coming into the 90s at a pretty strong point, and then there were other things that happened. But there are a lot of gems in there, and there were a lot of hits in there, actually, also. Do you feel that way specifically about the 90s? And then how does that contrast with the post-90s output, in your opinion, of the 2000s through his last few records in the mid-2010s? Is there a way that we can map out, just broadly speaking, as you sort of just did for the 90s, how you view this entire final kind of swing of his career? Right, right. Prince's legacy ultimately was about our artistic freedom. His battle with his record company, where he was advocating for artists to create their own systems for music distribution and owning their own master recordings and leaving behind the old record industry way of doing business. Mm. Those are all things I associate with Prince's legacy. And a lot of those things started in the 1990s. Right. So we have to think about that. We have to think about the fact that he really redefined himself in the 90s in terms of not necessarily wanting to be the kind of pop star that Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey and Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson were. He could go straight to his cult fan base, sort of like a Parliament Funkadelic kind of artist or a Grateful Dead kind of artist. And then if he felt like it, he could still show up on the pop chart with albums like Musicology and hits like Black Sweat. Mm. He kind of did what he wanted. He represented freedom in the end Mm. and he was as free as possible in the new millennium period let's say right from 2000 on he was definitely free to do what he wanted and his legacy was cemented i'm interested in that i think that that's a really interesting framing of this era and of him in general because you know i'm a prince fan but this Deep Dive has given me a deeper understanding of his work, and I've thought about Mm -hmm. it in more of a critical way than I ever have before. And I was interested in a characterization that Alan Light, the critic, made in Pitchfork when he was reviewing The Gold Experience, which is his record from 1995, sort of talking about how essentially... For Prince's imperial moment in the 1980s, he really adroitly walked this tightrope between being this true avant-garde eccentric music maker and pop figure and also being someone that could clearly knock out a centrist pop hit 
whenever he wanted to, and that through most of those records, even though there's a lot of variance in the 80s catalog, there's obviously a big difference in what he's attempting in terms of his pop aspirations on a record like Purple Rain than on a record like Around the World in a Day or even A Sign of the Times in some ways. But walking that tightrope, whether it was from album to album or within a specific album, felt kind of integral to how we thought about Prince is this artist that was at once the most eccentric pop figure possible and then also one of the biggest hit makers of all time. And then at a certain point in the 1990s, it felt like he sort of stopped trying to walk that tightrope as much and leaned much more heavily into his eccentricities and into his sort of personal larks. Mm. And that increased, for the most part, obviously we have exceptions like musicology in 3121. Right. But for the most part, it feels like he sort of decided for whatever reasons, and maybe we'll get into this, maybe it's a result of how he viewed the music industry. Maybe it was just he had achieved being the biggest pop star in the world, and perhaps that was just not interesting to him anymore. But at a certain point, it felt to me like he really decided that he was over what had been kind of a defining tightrope act of his peak commercial era. Does that ring true to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That that makes sense to me. I'm not sure exactly when it happened in terms of pinpointing it exactly. Definitely it happened during the 1990s at some point. Right. Light was kind of pegging that to the gold experience being the last time that he sort of really attempted that, perhaps up until musicology. Yeah, I think that there are points on emancipation which come after the gold experience where he's sort of shooting for the brass ring of the pop charts and of having hits. I think he may even have expected more out of Rave Unto the Joy Fantastic than resulted, you know what I mean? Yes. When Prince signed with Clive Davis at Arista, he was expecting maybe that Clive would be able to do for him what he had just done for Carlos Santana in terms of the Supernatural album that managed to sell 15 million copies, you know. Sure. Prince's album didn't sell anywhere near that. No. But he may have expected Clive to be able to do that same kind of magic. But then, yes, I do agree that at some point, I think actually directly after that dalliance with Clive, that he really threw in the towel on even trying to reclaim that pop juggernaut sort of thing and just completely be free. Right. That's interesting, too. The other point that you made that I think will be a good point for us to get into the chronology of this, which is you were talking about how by the 90s, he's kind of already seen as a legend and a super influential figure in pop. You had mentioned that Madonna's tapping him to lend credibility and music virtuosity to her smash 1989 album, Like a Prayer. You can sort of see his impact on stars like George Michael and Lenny Kravitz and tons of artists that are coming in his wake, even as he's still coming off of his own sort of imperial moment. You sort of were already getting at this, but can you just talk a little bit more in detail about how Prince is seen following the Batman soundtrack as we kind of head into the Graffiti Bridge era? It's a big turnover moment in pop in general, as I see it. The 80s into the 90s is a big change. There's a change of the guard. A lot of artists from the 80s struggle to make this transition effectively. Obviously, a great example, honestly, being Madonna, who has her biggest album in 1989 and then goes through, in Madonna terms, a relative commercial come down with erotica and bedtime stories in the 90s until she mounts her own comeback in the late 90s. There's new stars, as you were mentioning, emerging like Whitney in the late 80s. Mariah's about to come out. The sound of pop changes a lot, kind of moving away from some of the industrial Minneapolis funk that Prince had pioneered that defined a lot of the sound of the mid to late 80s and pop. I'm curious, how does the general public view 
debut Prince. I mean, obviously he is a legend. He's obviously one of the defining pop stars of the 80s, but he has had a series of records that have performed less well than his peaks. Do you think that overall the general public outside of his fan base sees him as past his peak? How does the general public interface with him coming off of the Batman soundtrack as we enter the 1990s? I think that, as I mentioned, his pop stardom was at its apex. People from his hardcore fan base felt like, yes, Prince could mint a hit whenever he felt like it. And there were others who felt like, eh, is Prince losing it? Can he actually still compete? Michael Jackson went about pop superstardom in a completely different way. Right. He really wanted the Grammys. He really wanted the record sales. He really wanted things to be big, big, big mm. with stadiums and million dollar videos and all of that. And there were people who felt like Prince should still be going after that kind of thing. Graffiti Bridge, the film, was a sequel to Purple Rain. Yeah. And people were on board with that until it turned out to be a horrible movie. <laughs> but people were like, yeah, do that. Get the original director who did Purple Rain and get a real story, right. make that happen and sell another 10 million copies or whatever Purple Rain sold. Right. And that's not what Graffiti Bridge was. <laughs> he looped people in with, yeah, okay, it's going to be a Purple Rain sequel. And then he just sort of told a different story and sold us on that album, something that was worlds away from Purple Rain. Prince. Morris Day. Jerome Benton. And the time. Bridge. I think the general public was sort of wait and see, you know, like did Prince fall off or can he still actually compete with Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson? And for that matter, these rappers who are going multi-platinum. Right, which feels like honestly an important element in setting up especially his 90s catalog, which is that there's a lot of ways in which Prince has a brittle relationship to the rise of hip hop and then also tries to embrace it at the same time in a lot of this work. Yeah, definitely. Bobby Brown is not to be discounted for that matter because he represented sort of an infusion of hip-hop into R&B, mm. Bobby Brown was that guy and was doing it while selling the types of numbers that Prince used to sell. Yeah, totally. That Don't Be Cruel album that outsold probably everything that Prince released in the 90s. It's really interesting, too, because I think that sort of relationship with hip-hop it reveals an interesting dichotomy in Prince's persona during this period and following it, which is Prince is obviously defined as one of the coolest, most edgy avant-garde figures in pop history. Right. And yet, at the same time, there's this creeping conservatism and religious fervor that starts to gain steam during this period. And it's a really strange dichotomy that I think sometimes creates interesting work and sometimes feels a little bit in competition with each other through some of this period of his music. This innate sort of of eccentricity and cool factor coming up against a creeping, almost conservative view that culminates when he becomes a Jehovah's Witness and he decides he's not going to swear anymore and he swears off casual sex and a lot of the things that defined the prince that emerged in the <laughs> late 70s and early 80s who was talking about stealing a yeah, virgin yeah. on her wedding day and enticing her with oral sex or whatever. There's this competing impulse that I think can be borne out in Prince's back and forth relationship with hip hop through the music of the 1990s that he creates. He befriended the bassist Larry Graham Jr 
Jr. in August of 1997, Larry Graham, who reinvented the bass with Sly and the Family Stone in the 60s, right? Right. They met at some kind of after show in Nashville or something in 97. And Larry Graham is a devout Jehovah's Witness and turned Prince onto that. And Prince eventually converted in 2001. But what that meant was that he had to tone down his live show right. in terms of the salaciousness. So the shock factor, for that matter, of his sexiest songs couldn't really compete anymore with the simulated sex that were on albums by Jodeci and Dr. Right. Dre and <laughs> Biggie Smalls. Right, right. You listen to a Biggie Smalls album and Lil' Kim was going down on him. Right. You listen to Dr. Dre and he'd be fucking a secretary in right. the office right. or there were blowjobs on Jodeci albums yes. that Prince really didn't take it quite that far. Also, he was in a committed relationship with Maite, his eventual wife. They were in a committed relationship by 1993. Right. He was a married man by 1996. Right. And I guess he got an old in 99. They divorced in 2000, but he was sort of someplace else. Yes. They were trying to start a family. Right. So the songs were still salacious, but it started to tone down and there was this competition with hip hop that rather than continue to try to keep up, I mean, Prince turned 40 in like 1998. So he was sort of more of an elder statesman kind of a situation. All right. So in thinking about Graffiti Bridge, I think it's interesting the way you characterized it as an act that could reflect his continued stature as a top pop figure. Because when I was thinking about this film and the way he was trying to tie it back to Purple Rain, it kind of smacked a little bit of flop sweat to me in terms of his commercial fortunes. Obviously, Bat Dance was a big hit, but Love Sexy had been the biggest flop of his career to that point. Right. And I had a sense that Graffiti Bridge was his attempt to be like, I'm back. I've got a new movie that's a sequel to the biggest moment in my pop career. Right. I've got this new band that's called The New Power Generation that's an allusion to my old band, The Revolution, that was part of Purple Rain and a lot of my peak material. Right. And as you mentioned, it does not succeed in following up Purple Rain in any sort of commercial and I think artistic sense at all. Right. Can you talk a little bit about Graffiti Bridge, what the movie is about just very broadly and what the music on it sounds like? What is that project about in your mind? Sure, yeah. Well, Graffiti Bridge was a sequel of Purple Rain. It brings back the principles of that movie for the most part that the time, his protege band from the 80s had reunited. There was a new protege, Ingrid Chavez, who was actually a voice from the Love Sexy album a couple of years earlier than that. She would soon have her own album on Paisley Park Records, partially produced by Prince. But unlike Purple Rain, the Graffiti Bridge album, all the artists from the movie were on the soundtrack. So Purple Rain was just Prince and Revolution, right? Right. But the Graffiti Bridge album was the time, and it was Tevin Campbell and George Clinton, Mavis Staples and the rapper T.C. Ellis, right? The New Power Generation is not on the album, but they're mentioned on the album. And the album closes out with a song called New Power Generation, but the group hadn't actually formed yet. For me, Graffiti Bridge kind of says goodbye to the 1980s Mm. by kind of clearing out the vault of his unused material. Right. People didn't realize it at the time, but a lot of the songs on that album were revived from the vault for that album. Right. Tick, Tick, Bang was from 1981. Mm -hmm. New Power Generation was once entitled Bold Generation. Mm. It's from 1982, and it was written for the time. Weekend Funk was from 1983, on and on. Can't Stop This Feeling I Got was from 82. The Question of You was from 85. There were other songs from 87. Like, some of the time songs were originally meant for an aborted time album, so... The general public didn't know any of this, but Prince, in his mind, I guess, was sort of like, 
let me not go into the studio and create a new Purple Rain. Right. I'm just going to blow the dust off of a bunch of songs and put them out. Yeah. And ironically, Rolling Stone gave the album like four and a half stars at the time. Critics loved it. Thieves in the Temple was a hit. But commercially, it only went gold, which was poor for Prince. Yeah, and I think you can sense in listening to this music that it is kind of dusted off from the vault. Mm. To me, experiencing these songs, I think Thieves is a really good song, but at the same time kind of feels standard issue in a way that Mm. I think when you're Prince and your whole thing up to this point has been how you've pushed boundaries, how you've reinvented the sound of pop over and over and over again through those 80s records in particular, I think there is a bit of a challenge in terms of he's not Kylie Minogue where it's like you do the same album over and over again and everyone's chill about it. Yeah, totally. At least up to this point, it feels fundamental to who Prince is as an artist that there's innovation happening and there's forward motion in the artistic project. There is a feeling on these songs that I think kind of can come back to haunt a lot of records that we're going to talk about today of him retreading well but still retreading ideas of the past and not necessarily adding vital new things to the formula. Does that feel right to you? At least in thinking about this album. Yes and no. I wanted to like Graffiti Bridge more than I actually did at the time. Right. I'm sure many Prince fans felt the same way about it. <laughs> when Doves Cry, for example, had no baseline, right? Right. That was one of the things that kind of hooked everybody. And there was something off about it in a good way that you couldn't put your finger on. And it was like, oh, I have no baseline. Right. The same thing with Kiss. Kiss was so sparse that it grabbed you and it was innovative. Thieves in the Temple doesn't really have anything like that going for other than just being a strong song. Right. It's innovative in the sense that Prince's sound is signature to Prince, but it doesn't necessarily sound like it's moving anything forward for him, I guess, in a way. Right, right. I mean, to his dying day, he would perform joint repetition in concert. And I kind of feel like joint repetition, even though it is kind of an older song, not specifically recorded for Graffiti Bridge, that's sort of the classic. Mm -hmm. That's the diamond in the rough. Holding someone is truly believing There's joy in repetition All right, so as you mentioned, Graffiti Bridge is not the comeback or the massive juggernaut or sequel to Purple Rain that I think maybe Prince had hoped it would be. It ends up failing to make back its $7 million budget at the box office, and it's nominated for five Golden Raspberry Awards, including Worst Picture, (laughs) Worst Actor, Worst Screenplay. The album does okay. It sells half a million copies, and as you mentioned, Thieves in the Night goes number six. So I think that speaks to perhaps the question I was getting at earlier, which is that Prince no matter what is happening, is still able to produce big songs. He's still enough of a massive celebrity and star and force in pop music that anything he does, even if it's coming on the back of a flop movie, can still gain some sort of traction with pop audiences. And in 1991, he releases Diamonds and Pearls, which I think is actually the first album, as you were mentioning, that actually credits and includes his new band, The New Power Generation. Correct. And is named after two of his dancers, Diamond and Pearl, 
who appear on the album cover and I think is viewed by many and I'd be interested how you would characterize this as kind of the last super essential at least in a massive commercial way Prince record do you see it that way I mean do you see Diamonds and Pearls as kind of the end point of some sort of commercial period for Prince I mean in terms of thinking of Prince albums as both artistic achievements and then simultaneous hit delivery machines right yeah so I could see that I could see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the opportunity that could have been there for the gold experience was sort of squandered because he was at odds with his record company mm-hmm. and they weren't promoting things the way they should have. And the whole rollout of that album was so atrocious. Mm. Talk to me about what's happening on this record and how you feel like it sounds and what the main aesthetic touchstones are of it. For sure, for sure. Prince, I believe, he kind of changed his approach to making music on Diamonds and Pearls by using a live drummer, Michael Bland, Michael B., and including the Aretha Franklin sort of soulful vocals of Rosie Gaines, right? Mm. He'd used Bonnie Boyer for the Sign of the Times live band, right. but Rosie Gaines was front and center on songs. The title track was like a duet between the two of them. Some felt up until this point that he kind of abandoned his Black audience. Right. So surrounding himself with a Black band, which included a rapper, Tony M, that was a huge statement. Right. Spike Lee was probably fresh off of Do the Right Thing, and he directed a video, Money Don't Matter Tonight, for the album. He had an ultimate sort of quiet storm, slow jam with Insatiable, and that was big. Right as Michael Jackson was calling himself the king of pop, Prince declared himself daddy pop <laughs> for the song, <laughs> daddy pop. Songs like Get Off were leaning into like a heavy sexuality, which we were used to from Prince, but also featured rap, right? Right. You know, Tony M is rhyming on it. So he's going head to head with the new Jack swing of Teddy Riley, but doing his own version of it. Get off. 23 positions in a one night stand. Get off. I'll only call you Like his former protégés, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, were doing their own version of it with Rhythm Nation, you know, which was still churning out singles. Right. He would never admit this, but Cream sounds remarkably similar to Bang a Gong, right? Totally T-Rex. By by T-Rex, yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, he's innovating. There's a holographic cover. There are no songs from The Vault contrasted with Graffiti Bridge. Yeah. All of these songs were specifically recorded for this project. And he's got a new band. And it's not The Revolution. It's a bunch of Black people. That was definitely a statement. Yeah, for sure. I think this album is really interesting because I do feel like it's Prince interfacing with a new generation of stars that obviously many of whom were inspired by him. I'm sure Teddy Riley would mention Prince as a massive inspiration to him. Oh, yeah. As would many of the 
rappers that I think he's attempting to sort of answer to here. So I think in just thinking about shifts of the guard, it is interesting to hear a Prince album where Prince is kind of having to reckon with a new generation that's younger than him. Because I just think we think about Prince in his imperial phase as he's the guy, he's the one that's setting the tone for everything. And on some of these songs, which are great. I mean, I really love Get Off. I love the title track, which is kind of like a locket pop ballad, kind of like a wedding classic in some ways. Right. As you mentioned, there's Cream, which is like a T-Rex homage. Yeah. There's a lot of variety on this record. It really is one of those Prince albums where it's almost a showcase for his versatility in some ways. Yeah. But it's really interesting to see him having to reckon with being an elder statesman, which is what this album in some places feels like to me. Like mm-hmm. You listen to a song like Jughead, whatever, and it's, to me, I find it a little bit of like an embarrassing sort of like dad discovering hip hop <laughs> in a way that undermines sort of Prince as the coolest, most vanguard pop star. Right. Don't worry if you're looking silly. Look over here at me. Working for Willie, getting busy in the corner. Hold my owner. You think that I'm posing? I'm just frozen. This is an interesting record where I feel like he does hit a lot of commercial peaks. This is obviously a very commercially successful record for Prince. Get Off is number 21 hit. Money Don't Matter Tonight goes number 23. Diamonds and Pearls number three. And Cream is number one hit. His last number one hit. So this is a very effective commercial return to form that I feel like he really needed. But it's interesting to hear an album where I feel like Prince is kind of having to almost make sense of the world of music that's arrived in his wake in a sense. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to your earlier point, this is the last time that he had that as a goal and pulled it off. Right. It wasn't a soundtrack like Batman had been, like Graffiti Bridge had been. Right. It had no holdovers from five years ago that people were unaware of. And critics loved it. Yeah. Critics loved it and the audience loved it. It was a huge commercial success. Jughead also is a song that I don't enjoy. Yes. So. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I completely agree with you about that, especially I was a heavy hip hop fan and still am, obviously, but yeah, yeah, I was heavily into hip hop and this is 1991. And so A Tribe Called Quest is out with the low-end theory. Right, exactly. Hip-hop's in an incredible golden period at this moment. And there's a way in which this record sort of exposes Prince as not quite in with the kids in a way. Right, right, exactly that. (laughs) All right, so as we mentioned, Diamonds and Pearls is Prince's last huge critical commercial massive blockbuster album in the truest sense of the word. And I think this would be a good point for us to sort of lay out a really defining aspect of Prince in this period, which is that there is is a massive label drama that goes on with his longtime label, Warner Brothers, that sort of begins to percolate and peak during this early 90s period. Can you describe what exactly that label drama is about, how it comes to be, and what the contours of that conflict are? Sure. I mean, it's very Byzantine, but I'll try to make it as digestible as possible. Yeah. Okay, so Prince's label drama started when he signed a $100 million deal with Warner Brothers in August of 1992. And Prince's problem with it ultimately was that he signed over his publishing and ownership of his music to Warner Brothers. People like Alan Leeds, for example, who was the previous road manager for James Brown and was managing Prince at the time and was like the president of Paisley Park Records at the time, was kind of telling Prince, maybe you shouldn't do this. And Prince wanted this headline, you know, like other people had signed these big deals. Janet Jackson just got a big deal. Aerosmith, I think, signed a big deal. He wanted to be known as the one with the big Biggest deal. Mm-hmm. So he did it. And then he read it afterwards, <laughs> probably. The contract guaranteed these $10 million advance payments as long as the previous album sold $5 million. Mm. So he wasn't able to sell that. He'd have to recoup $100 million that he's been given with the sales of six albums. 
it would only be a profitable deal if he released like six Purple Rain right. during the 1990s, which he was never able to release another Purple Rain his entire career, you know? Sure, of course. Warner's, they also owned his masters, according to this deal, right? So they wanted him to reduce his output so his albums wouldn't compete with each other. Mm. At the time, Michael Jackson was releasing albums every four years. Right. Janet Jackson was releasing them maybe every three years. Mm -hmm. Madonna every two or three years. Prince, being Prince, (laughs) wanted to release as much music as he felt inspired to release. Truly. And also was just the most prolific artist of all time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So he wanted to do that and he wanted to own his own music back. Warner, for their part, wanted him to release less music and focus on making more commercial blockbuster music. The way Prince works is that he wakes up at six in the morning and by midnight, the song is finished. Right. The way Michael Jackson works is that he works on the hi-hat for four months. Right, right, right. And then (laughs) for the next four months, I guess the record company felt like if you maybe took your time, you could release another Purple Rain. If it takes three years to do, don't worry about it. You'll have an album that sells 15 million copies. But Prince didn't feel that way, obviously. In four years' time, Prince could drop eight albums. Mm. What do you make of that as a window into Prince's artistic output in this period. Prince obviously is free to do whatever he wants and he's an artist and if he felt like the way he was releasing music in this kind of torrent in the period we're about to talk about is what he wanted to do, that's what he wants to do. Do you think that the label had a point that if Prince had approached some of this music differently, perhaps it could have been more commercially viable than it was if he had taken more time and refined some of these records and worked a little bit slower? Do you think that that could have had an impact on his commercial success over the next period? period of years? Yeah, yeah, I do agree with that. I think that ultimately that wasn't as important to him right. as it was to Warner Brothers, but I totally feel that way. I mean, you know, I feel like it was almost as if, as a writer, because that's what I am, Yeah. sometimes you have to write your way through, like, writer's block. Right. The only way to approach it is just by writing, and I think that Prince produced a lot of music that was not as good as maybe it could have been if you took longer right. with it, but in that process, we got gems not by accident, but by him working through these other songs that maybe weren't as great. So if he didn't work as prolifically as he did, he might not have reached the highs that we enjoy from the music that did turn out in a great classic sort of masterpiece fashion. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that. Right. And how does all of this lead to him changing his name to a symbol? Can you just explain how that comes to pass? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, Prince changed his name because Prince, quote unquote, was under contract to Warner Brothers. But the symbol was not. So (laughs) even if it didn't invalidate his contract, the name change at least brought attention to his plight, Mm. to what was going on. It made people ask him, well, why did you do this? So that he could immediately pivot to, well, Warner Brothers is being unfair. So blah, blah, blah. You know, he said the idea came to him on vacation in Puerto Rico somewhere. Yeah. And obviously the symbol itself is a combination of the male, female biological signs. And he named his final Prince in a New Power Generation album after the symbol. 1992's love symbol, right? Right. Yeah. Warner Brothers wasn't into that because you don't know what to call the album, but they let him do it. (laughs) And fans, as you just said, started calling it the love symbol. Right. But Prince at no point said this is called the love symbol or called this album the love symbol or right. call me the love symbol. It was just sort of like, this symbol is my name and you can't say it. And if you want to know why I changed it, 
It's because Prince is owned by Warner Brothers and I'm not Prince anymore. It opened that conversation. Right. And that was pretty much why he did it. Do you think that there's a sense in which all of this super narrative that's sort of disconnected from any music itself also affected the way the music was received? I mean, it sounds like this was a huge press event. Prince is obviously still a huge star. He's making this a big deal. I mean, I know that he wanted people to know about the battle he was in with the record label to some degree. Is there a sense in which, for those of us who didn't live through it, that the narrative of Prince's conflict with this record label almost usurped the music or undermined people's ability to pay attention to the music in this period? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, Prince's music was received by the public and critics in a variety of ways during the 1990s, right? Right. As I'd mentioned, compared to the more commercial path of Michael and Janet and Whitney and Mariah, Prince seemed to be flailing. Right. You couldn't call him Prince. Right. He started wearing slave on his face. Right. Some albums said Prince and some albums said the symbol. Right. He didn't actually seem to care about top charts or right. maintaining pop superstardom. Right, and some of these albums were truly a function of just releasing albums so that he could get out of the contract, right? Exactly, right, great aside. And so the public continued to love him in terms of adoring his live shows, right. and he's able to really continue to cement his legacy as one of the greatest live performers of all time, no matter how popular or unpopular the material that he was releasing. Harsher critics were more ready to write him off, often with racist undertones. True believers though, felt he was only like a hit record away from Purple Rain or Around the World in a Day or, or Another Diamonds and Pearls. So that was sort of how he was perceived during that period. So in thinking about these early to late 90s albums, I'm talking about 1992's Love Symbol, 94's Come and the Black Album, 95's The Gold Experience, which we've both touched on briefly, 96's Chaos and Disorder and Emancipation, and 1998's Crystal Ball and the Truth. What are the highlights for you here? I mean, I know this is a lot of music to talk about, but we got to find a way. Can you just talk us a little bit in broad strokes, what you like from this period, what you like less, and why certain things work and don't work, in your opinion? And then, of course, I'd like to, within this conversation, touch on the fact that Prince did have a series of hits through these records, like Seven, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, I Hate You, etc. So can you just characterize some of your favorites and least favorites from this swing of 90s records? And when things hit or don't hit, in your opinion, is there a way we can pinpoint why they work? and why they don't. Right, right. Feel free to interrupt me because this is going to take a minute. Sure, I got you. I'm going to sit back. I just want you to wash over me with your read on this situation. (laughs) I mean, in my opinion, the highlights of Prince's 1990s output include The Gold Experience, The Truth, and Emancipation. Yeah. Come has its fans, and I love a few of those songs. The Crystal Ball also. It's full of songs from the 80s and remixes, but there are tracks there that he specifically recorded in the 90s as well. Mm -hmm. The Gold Experience, I think, would have been a killer release if not for the record company war yeah very enjoyable album i have to say i had never listened to it before and i really liked this record a lot okay wow incredible yeah endorphin machine is killer yeah like almost like an aerosmith song or something like that Shy is great. Dolphin is great. Lenny Kravitz is actually singing background on Dolphin. Little tidbit. Insane song. I love this song. I love when Prince gets into his most eccentric and sort of insane ideations. That's my favorite thing. If I came back as a dolphin, would you listen to me then? I mean, what <laughs> only Prince could come up with something like that. If I came back as a dolphin, would you listen to me then? Would you let me be your 
It was a single. It was not on the radio every five minutes. But what was, was Shh, which was originally Tevin Campbell had a version, Prince had a version. These were like Quiet Storm, Slow Jam classic. We ain't got to break it on down. In the daytime, I think not. And the most beautiful girl in the world was a big smash. Right. Which is kind of like a Philly soul song in the style of the Delphonics. I really think that that's an interesting song to talk about too, because I think one thing that sort of starts to characterize some of Prince's output increasingly over this period is he becomes very focused on really homaging his influences in a way. He gets very interested as his music progresses in sort of returning to the music that predated him and creating really well done homages to them. And I think The Most Beautiful Girl in the World is a really good emblem of that part of Prince's oeuvre during this period. Yeah, I agree with that. For me personally, it's a little too saccharine. Yeah. However, on purpose. That was the nature of that song. And so if you were going to create a song like that, that's what it was supposed to sound like. Yeah. The Truth was also one of my favorite records from the period. It was tacked on to the Crystal Ball set. But I think it would have been a killer release during the period of MTV Unplugged albums like Nirvana's and Eric Clapton's. It was an acoustic album for the most part. Yeah. In fashion and fashion To me, his last deeply heartfelt, deeply personal song was on this album about the death of his son, Comeback. But the truth also had Dion on it. Man in a Uniform was great. The Other Side of the Pillow. It's an amazing record, actually. Yeah. They re-released it for Record Store Day a few years ago. It was great. Mm -hmm. Emancipation also, I thought, made for a strong return. Finally, with the record company war behind him, Friend, Lover, Sister, Mother, Wife as a song was really beautiful. I think it was written for Maite basically as a proposal. Right, and then he also directly covers the stylistics. Yes. He's very interested in dutifully recreating Philly soul a lot in this period, it sounds like to me. I agree. Thematically, he's talking about computers. Email is on there. My computer is on there. He's talking about settling down. Let's have a baby. Right. The Holy River. Yeah. There's an almost techno-influenced funk on the human body and new world, right? Right. Which is a concern of his throughout a lot of his music. I mean, he's constantly sort of dealing both in the style of his music in terms of his employment of drum machines and synthesizers, contrasted with live instruments on his peak era 80s work, and then also concerns about nuclear proliferation, concerns about the creep of tech. That's always been kind of a big Prince theme in a lot of his music. Definitely. With Tank Emancipation was EMI who put the album out. They were going out of business. And then he lost his child and refused to talk about it, really. And so much of the album was about the fact 
fact that this child was going to be born. One of the tracks, Sex in the Summer, the sonogram heartbeat is like the percussion for the song. His son was born with Pfeiffer syndrome and only lived for six days. And wow. so I'm sure this entire album reminded Prince of that period of his life. And so mm. none of these songs were really performed after the album dropped, which is wild. Right. 36 songs were just sort of forgotten about because they're tied to the death of the child and what he must have been going through during that. What works less well for you in this period of these records? What are the ones that register less for you and why do you think they do? I mean, Prince was the master of all modes. However, hip hop was not really one of those modes. <laughs> You know? So not exactly all. <laughs> so not exactly all. I mean, his hip hop songs, they needed work in the beginning. Yeah. Stuff like My Name is Prince and Jughead, they don't work for me. Yeah. But I think he found the comfortability eventually, like on Face Down, where he sort of embraced his way of doing it. Somebody once told him that he wouldn't take Prince to the ringer. Let him go down as a washed up singer. Ain't that a bitch? Thinking all along that he wanted to be rich. And eventually he sort of left it alone, which I was glad about. Yeah. Eventually he let it go, trying to be hip or whatever. Right. Which, yeah, I was in favor of. Yeah. <laughs> Just sort of setting up, you said that he doesn't really discover his Jehovah's Witness proclivities, let's say, until the late 90s or the early 2000s. I mean, religion has always played a part in Prince's music, but there's sort of a creeping spirituality vibe to some of the stuff. I think about the song Seven. And right. There's a little bit of a vibe of hippie 60s, 70s, wide-eyed optimism about world peace filter through a little bit of religious fanaticism in some ways. I am yours now and you are mine and together we love through all space and time so don't cry one day all seven will die Like is the song about the seven deadly sins? I wonder <laughs> in this period how is Prince's increased sort of religious life apparent in this music if it is and in tandem with that question how does his relationship to sex shift in this period I mean you talked about this a little bit that he begins to become a little bit tamer I think the thing about Prince is that no matter what Prince does everything he says and does feel sexual because it's such a huge part of his persona and voice and it's just like even if he's not trying to he makes everything kind of sexy right, right. I'm curious how you view the conflict or interplay between religion and sex which has been defining to a lot of his work how does that play out in this period of his music in particular yeah I mean I think that as he converted to being a Jehovah's Witness, he started laying down spiritual parables on the Rainbow Children, for example, which is a little later in 2001. And those parables actually seem to kind of be thinly veiled about his relationship with Maite and his soon-to-be second wife, Manuela Tespolini. Right. Try to tell us what we want. Prince was always questioning the higher power and spirituality from the very beginning. And so right. whatever he was learning and whatever he was meditating on spiritually, it ended up being on yeah. certain music, like the Holy River, for example, and on Emancipation, where he's shouting out Jesus's name and stuff like that. Yeah. That totally is in tandem with something like Anastasia from Love Sexy, you know? Sure. There's a through line there. 
There's always been. I mean, of course, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the main conceits of the prince ethos is sex as an access point to the divine. I mean, I think that that's always been a really defining aspect of where previous soul singers of the past were in conflict about sex and God being competing impulses. I think one of the innovations of Prince is the revelation through him that sex and the divine are intertwined with each other. Right. There was a religious fervor to Prince's sexuality. <laughs> That's a very liberating thought to put out into the world in the face of centuries of religious ideas creating opposition between these two things. Prince was like, actually, no, they're completely intertwined. So I think it's interesting in some ways to see him feel a little bit more in conflict about those things in this period as I view it. A little bit more traditionally in conflict about the relationship between sex and religion. He becomes a little bit more conservative about the whole thing. He becomes very interested in monogamy as the way to right. go. He becomes dismissive of casual sex. There's a lot of things that were like, you know, if Prince's early music is defined by absolute utter sexual liberation and that being not in conflict with religion, but part of it, I feel like there is a little bit more of traditional conflict in some of this work. Sure, sure. I mean, there was a point in the 90s where he was releasing singles like Pussy Control and releasing albums called Come. Right. And then <laughs> by the end of the decade, things have toned down a bit. Yeah. It reminds me of Madonna in a way. Mm. I know she had her own ideas. I'm not going to say how influenced by Prince she may or may not have been, but she was definitely someone who wore a lot of crosses and made no bones about how much she enjoyed sex and that the two didn't have to be at cross purposes. Sexuality and spirituality, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. So many of these 80s pop stars are defined by that religious conflict. Right. George Michael certainly was. Mm -hmm. You can definitely see elements of Michael being sort of informed by Christianity. It's a huge part of this generation of pop stars is reckoning with religion and sex in their music is a very defining aspect of this 80s generation in particular. Agreed. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right? Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing, in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. So, as we mentioned, Prince has fluctuating commercial success during this period, but it's a torrent of music. A lot of this period is defined by the super narrative of his conflict with the record label. He's very reclusive and actually refuses to promote a lot of this music. I mean, that's correct, right? I was thinking that he didn't seem that reclusive to me during the 1990s. No? Oh, okay. I feel like it might have even been quite the opposite, because I remember him appearing on the Oprah Winfrey show. Right. Shortly after his child passed away, actually, though he didn't admit it. Have you ever perceived yourself as being I know you must perceive yourself as being different. Have you ever perceived yourself as being weird in any way? Yeah. 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 But I understand everything's relative, not weird to me. But, yeah. Uh, probably weird as And you're living in Minneapolis, of all places. Minneapolis, yeah. Yeah. I will always live in Minneapolis. Okay, so people think you're weird. They think yeah. you're strange. What do you want them to know? The music. 
I remember him being on MTV with Chris Rock. Yeah. Explaining that Bad was supposed to be a duet between him and Michael Jackson. and Right, famously. I love the story of you. No, there's all these Prince. I'm sorry. That, well, that's the guy you used to be. Mm-hmm. There's the story of you turning down Bad. Well, <laughs> you know, that Wesley Snipes character, right. th- that would have been me. <laughs> all right, now you, <laughs> now you run that video in your mind. The first line of that song is, your butt is mine. Your butt is mine. Now I said, who's going to sing that to whom? Because you sure ain't singing it to me. And I sure ain't singing it to you. So right there we got, you know, right there we got a problem. Yeah, I remember him debuting the new Power Generation on the Arsenio Hall show. I know he gave cover stories to Vibe and Rolling Stone and Spin and Ebony. Certainly, since the success of Purple Rain, he started giving less interviews and eventually not allowing journalists to record him at all. But I think that at a certain point in the 90s, he recognized that he needed the press in order to get his conflict with Warners out there and to explain his side of the story. And I think that he actually spoke to them at a greater rate than he had previously. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about the 1999 deal with Arista. were alluding to this earlier, but basically he signs this new deal in 1999 with Clive Davis. I wonder how you think about signing that deal and what that says about how Prince viewed this period of his commercial trajectory. There clearly was a part of him maybe that through signing this deal with Arista by looking at the Santana album that maybe he was looking to sort of regain some sort of commercial footing with this deal. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was 1999 one of Prince's greatest songs. The year was his to lose. Yes, sure. And he didn't do that great with it, unfortunately. I mean, from January 1st, everybody should have been talking about Prince until December 31st. And that was the year that he had considered himself a free agent at that point, right? Right. He had released Emancipation with EMI. Right. And they went out of business. Fine. Right. (laughs) And he signed a new deal with Arista after EMI folded. Yeah. It probably had a lot to do with Clive Davis's reputation, period. Right. But also the fact that he had gotten like a 50 15 million selling album out of Carlos Santana. Right. Supernatural, who, which who would have thought? Because Santana Records didn't sell like that in 1999 anymore. Right. Or ever. So the way Clive did it was with pairing Santana with new artists of the time, because Santana on guitar can't lose, and it was just sort of other people picking up other duties, like Wyclef Jean, for example. Sure. And Prince had some guest stars on his album, Raven to the Joy Fantastic which is the album that Arista put out. Gwen Stefani was on it. The rapper Eve was on it. But it didn't work out quite the same way. I don't enjoy that record very much. No, this was one of my least favorites, I have to say. Yeah, you're not alone. I feel like part of the issue was like Santana just let himself become immersed in the sounds of contemporary pop. And that's why that record worked. Whereas I feel like Prince is not willing to do that. He still feels like he has to kind of exert his control over the situation. And the music just sounds kind of inert and stilted to me in a lot of ways. That Eve song is just a dirge. Yeah, no thanks. And my note on the Gwen Stefani song is okay exclamation point <laughs> there's an insane disco cover of every day is a winding road right right right
that was the end of him and Harrison. That was the end of him and Clive Davis. Then he was on stage sort of dissing Clive from time to time. Right. And then he moved on. Right. The next album, The Rainbow Children, was not on Arista, nor was any other Prince album. Right, exactly. Well, it also feels like it was an end point for at least a long period of time, maybe through musicology, where Prince was like, fuck, trying to have commercial success. Right. I agree with that. I think that Prince is just such a great innovator that he started at that point using the internet to release his music straight to the public. Mm-hmm. With NPG Online Limited right. dot com or whatever it was. Can you explain what that is exactly? Well, sure. I mean, it was practically him creating his own social media network for his fans. Right. They could go to the site. They could download music. They could, for a certain amount of money per month, they get exclusives. They weren't available anywhere else. They would get to be able to buy his tickets before anybody else or get the best seats in the house or be able to sit through sound check rehearsals before the shows would start. Mm. One of his singles during the 90s was Gold from the Gold Experience. And he was saying that all that glitters ain't gold. And he seemed to turn his back on chasing commercial success right. in any way, shape, or form, really, by the turn of the 2000s. I said it earlier, he pretty much invested heavily in his cult following, like P-Funk, like The Grateful Dead, like Bob Dylan. Yeah, totally. Because we were always there for him. Right, and also the music that comes out in this period, whether you're talking about The Rainbow Children, One Night Alone, Expectation, News, these records through the early 2000s, they grow increasingly inaccessible and eccentric. Yes. The Rainbow Children, it has this really kind of overbearing religious overtone to it. There's 14 minute instrumental tracks. This music is clearly, hey, I'm doing whatever the fuck I want and I really do not give a fuck who listens to it. (laughs) On another level than even some of the music that he released in the 90s. How do you feel about this music as a fan? I mean, by the new millennium, Prince had embraced his status as a living legend who earned the right to release whatever he wanted, however he wanted. He revisited the jazz experimentation on those 80s Madhouse albums by releasing news. He served his own take on Neo Soul by recording the Rainbow children. Right. Honestly, it's probably my least favorite Prince period. Yes. The Rainbow Children has grown on me over the years, definitely. I don't feel like it's a bad album at all. Uh-huh. But between the Rainbow Children and probably 3121 is my least favorite Prince period. And Musicology was still the double platinum number one comeback record for him, but I didn't love Musicology personally. I didn't, I, I didn't really enjoy it. Well, let's talk about that. Following the slew of records that he releases on this website, which, you know, in some ways it's like his release strategy is more interesting than the music is in this period. His focus on innovating the industry and being ahead of the curb on how music was going to be delivered and released was almost more interesting than what he was doing musically during this time period for me personally. He was still the forward-thinking macro music industry guy more so than he was making interesting music in this period. Yeah, I mean, the success of musicology largely comes from the fact that he connected album sales with ticket sales. Right. Something that Billboard magazine stopped allowing after Prince got away with that. If you went to show, you bought a ticket and that counted as an album sale. So all of a sudden, right. musicology was double platinum as if it was like Dimes and Pearls, when really it wasn't so much that that many people were into it. It was more so that they were into his live show. That was innovative. For sure. But the thing about musicology that I think is interesting is that it's clearly a moment in which Prince once again, kind of like he did on 
Diamonds and Pearls or Raven to the Joy Fantastic less successfully, it becomes clear at a certain point that he's making a pivot in how he's approaching his music once again. And he once again wants to be someone that people listen yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. It's interesting because musicology is, in my mind, back to basics sounding. It's groovy. The title track is literally big upping Prince's most major early influences from Earth, Wind, and right. Fire to Sly and the Family Stone to James Brown, three of the godfathers of Prince's whole vibe. Don't you miss the feeling music gave you back in the day? Let's groove September, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Hot Pants by James, Sly's don't take you higher. And the music is much more fully thought out, constructed pop music meant to gratify a casual listener in a way that his music has not been for a long time. Right. So there's obviously a change in what he wants out of this, but you don't like this music. Can you talk about <laughs> what your feelings are about musicology and why you don't enjoy it? Maybe what I didn't like about it was that it seemed like a commercial grab. It's <laughs> mm. I don't know. Maybe it was a little too earnest for me in terms of trying to come back to the pop fold or something. I don't know. Maybe it'll grow on me eventually like the rainbow children eventually did yeah there's sort of a retro feel to it like trying to resurrect the artist that first influenced them period doesn't do it for me really doesn't do it for me well i think what's interesting is it kind of picks up on a strain that i was talking about with the most beautiful girl in the world that i think tracks through a lot of this music which is at some point prince becomes like a classicist it's a weird thing where it's someone who was known as such an innovator and a technological innovator and someone who remade how studios function for pop musicians and was the first person to use every new synthesizer and drum machine and was such a integral part of recreating the sound of music for the electronic era he was essential to the future. I mean, when Prince's peak music was out, he was setting the tone for what pop music sounded like. And then at a certain point in this stretch of music, he just becomes kind of a classicist. He's always going to be one of the most talented musicians ever to exist. So Prince doing whatever he's going to do, there's a consummate professionalism and perfection to a lot of his playing, the way he is able to recreate sounds from other periods. Prince is a genius. Whatever he's going to do, there's going to be that element in it. But I do think one of the things that feels frustrating about a lot of the music that we're talking about right now. And I do think Musicology, to me, is an enjoyable album, especially coming off of a slew of albums that I listened to in a row that are incredibly inaccessible and almost hard to listen to. Yeah. It was nice to get to an album that actually feels enjoyable <laughs> to consume, you know? So I think right. maybe that was where I was at when I listened to Musicology in this recent listen-through. Okay. But I think there is a feeling of disappointment of Prince just sort of lapsing into classicism. Yeah, I think that's what I didn't like about it. Yeah, there's someone who used to have, as integral to their persona, a forward thinking and innovative quality that was paired with classical technique. That was sort of the thrill of the whole musical approach. Just lapsed fully into homaging past music. Yeah. There's something ungratifying about that as a proposition for Prince music. Yeah, that's very well said. And that's pretty much how I felt about that album. I mean, I was in D.C. recently at the what we call the Black Smithsonian, right? It's the National African American Museum of something. But we call it the Black Smithsonian. And there's an exhibit on Afrofuturism. And Prince is in the exhibit because of how innovative he was with the use technologically of the Lynn drum and all of that. Yeah. I think about how, consider his 1980s hits for the Bangles and Sheena Easton and Patti LaBelle Mm -hmm. and Sheila Mm -hmm. E and Mm -hmm. Shaka Khan. Warner Brothers felt that he could turn out hits at will, which is why they gave him $100 million, right? Totally. And during the 90s, there were hits by Sinead O'Connor. 
and Martika and Tevin Campbell and The Time and others who'd come in his wake started covering him. TLC did If I Was Your Girlfriend. Genuine did When Doves Cry. Mariah Carey had The Beautiful One. Eventually, Alicia Keys covered him as well. And how come you don't call me anymore? I think eventually he starts referencing himself, like Black Sweat on 3121. Right. Whenever I hear that, I feel like it's an update of the sort of groove from Nasty Girl that Vanity Six came out with. Yeah, totally. Or Kiss, that kind of percussive, bassless yes. sound. Yeah. I feel like Black Sweat is his last great single in my mind. I would agree with that. It was earlier than that a bit, but when Britney Spears came out with Slave For You that Pharrell had produced, when I heard it, I was like, wow, this is totally nasty, girl. But for 2000 or 1999 or whatever year it was. Yeah, 100%. So it was interesting to me that with Black Sweat, the originator of Nasty Girl could go back and sort of remix his own genius for the modern age. Yeah, it's fun to listen to a song like Black Sweat because I think some of the things that are missing from some of this latter period print stuff is the sort of freewheeling smirk. Yeah, sure. <laughs> there was a feeling in Prince's peak work of, yes, all the consummate musicianship and all of the forward-thinking innovation, but there was also a feeling that Prince had a fucking blast making his music, and you can really hear that in so much of the canonical Prince stuff that we all love so much. And I think at a certain point, there was just this feeling of labored classicism that is interesting in its own right, but it just doesn't have that spark. And I think you listen to a song like Black Sweat and you realize he still could access that sense of playfulness and delight and that smirk and that thwack of the production that's so signature to him. I just feel like at a certain point, does Prince work as a fogey? <laughs> that was what I kept thinking of. Some artists are more suited to settling into middle-aged fogey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Prince, at least in the way that I think about him, I need my Prince music to feel exciting and out there and eccentric and strange on some level while also being gratifying as pop music. To me, that's the best Prince music. I hear you. I just think Prince either just going completely into utter eccentricity to the point where it's inaccessible or making classicist fogey music bifurcates his talent in a way that makes neither super gratifying. Yeah, I personally felt like his live performances became more important. Yeah, that was where it was. Right. That was where he was still the guy that we knew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was named after Miles Davis. And so I followed him as a teenager and stuff like that. I was able to see him live a couple of times before he passed. In one of his interviews, he was explaining how whatever you hear on his albums is just sort of a blueprint of what the song actually is. Because what the song actually is, is what you see when you're there. Mm. Sitting in the third row, looking up at him, hearing it live and what it becomes. Totally. And Prince definitely had the same approach. I've definitely been to concerts where whoever I'm watching just sort of replicates the record in front of you. And that's not engaging. Right. That sucks. A hundred percent. But Prince, he would change the arrangements. His songs had this living, breathing life to them that he brought. Totally. Even if it was a song that I actually didn't like on vinyl, I'd get to the live show and I'd be dancing to it. It would be something different. Yes. Like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. You don't have to 
I got to see him live for the one and only time around this mid-2000s period. I'm so glad that I got to witness that. He's Prince. I mean, it was unbelievable. The star quality, the X Factor, and then paired with what you're saying, which is that's where the musicianship could really benefit him because his ability to remake the songs live is all tied to the fact that he is just such an incredible talent playing live. He's got so much versatility. He's got such virtuosity. He doesn't have to stick to a choreographed no. Dua Lipa concert. <laughs> right. He's the perfect hybrid between pop spectacle and rock god. He's got the ability to free wheel through some of this stuff. And it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen was seeing Prince live. It was just amazing. And that was in this latter period of his career. And I think it's important that you set up this live performance as an important element here because I think the most important thing that happens in the 2000s for Prince is this Super Bowl performance in 2007, which many consider to be the greatest Super Bowl halftime show of all time. Not that he needed to cement his legacy, but I think it was a moment or maybe one of the last moments in his public facing life where Prince asserted for a new generation, for all generations, for the biggest audience in the world, why he's Prince, why he is one of the top five most important pop figures of the century. Then there is a feeling that is sort of conveyed through the live performance that isn't conveyed through his new music during this period that sort of helps cement that legacy more than any of his output in this period. And that performance to me is emblematic of that. Y'all wanna say goodnight? is the great mainstream American pastime with an enormous viewership. The Super Bowl halftime show reached an audience that largely hadn't considered Prince in a long time. No. Prince shows were always that electric in terms of what you saw during that halftime show. And showing that level of audience, what he was capable of, made it even more common knowledge that he's one of the country's all-time greatest performers. A hundred percent. And an element of this deep dive that just touches me and is so incredible and kind of hard to wrap your head around, but can only be pegged to the power of Prince, <laughs> to see such an eccentric, androgynous, out there alien figure be embraced by football fans at the <laughs> Super Bowl, and then that as emblematic of just how massive Prince is in general as a cultural figure, is just one of the greatest things and most perplexing elements when I look at the conservative nature of American culture and how much we've struggled with embracing elements outside of heteronormative mainstream, and obviously racially, etc. Yes. There's something about watching that Super Bowl performance as emblematic of just how widely beloved Prince is by everybody. Yeah, yeah. And how incredible that is and how dissonant that is <laughs> as a greater marker of the strangeness and wondrousness of Prince's career. That this absolute alien, eccentric, androgynous black man who walked around in high heels <laughs> and thongs and impersonated women and men and literally said in 1984, I'm not a woman, I'm not a man. I'm something you'll never understand. There's just something very moving and powerful to me about the power that truly great music and powerful star quality and essence can bust through 
our expectations, our society's norms. And I think that in some ways, Prince's entire career can be encapsulated as a representation of that power. I totally agree. His live show spoke for itself in terms of his concerts being legendary, transformative experiences. And he continued to tour worldwide, no matter what album he was dropping at the time. But once he reclaimed the name Prince in 2000 and had some mainstream success with musicology, the public began to sort of revere him again as a national treasure. Mm -hmm. So after surviving the 1990s, the expectation that he would make another Purple Rain kind of dissipated. Right. Purple Rain was never to be repeated. No, by him or anyone else. <laughs> like, at this point, it's respected as a never-to-be-repeated masterpiece of the 1980s. Yeah, and in the great Prince tradition, you know, I love how you set up the contrast with Michael, who constantly chased the next commercial juggernaut. Prince himself didn't want that. I mean, around the world in the day, could there be any more explicit rejection of that expectation than the record he released the next year? I mean, there's nothing I think that speaks more to who Prince is as an artist than the balancing between the eccentricity and the mainstream instincts. Most other pop stars of that level spend the rest of their careers explicitly chasing that. And of course, Prince had moments where he wanted to sort of recapture bits and pieces of that magic. But ultimately, that wasn't really his driving impulse. No. At the end of the day, Prince's artistic impulse was more powerful than his commercial one. And to his benefit in many ways. Sure. Ultimately, Prince cared more about what he wanted to do as an artist than what he needed to do for the public, which is not true for most of the pop stars he gets lumped in with as his peers. Michael, Madonna, I'm not under Reminding their artistry. They're all fantastic artists. Janet, I love them all. They're all some of my favorite artists of all time. Sure. But ultimately, they're commercial entities. They're commercial beasts at their core. They have tons of artistry and they employ their artistry for commercial ends. But ultimately, the driving force is how do I continue to morph this into something that's mass consumable? And Prince was not that way. Prince was the most successful avant-garde artist <laughs> right. in history. He was the most massively successful, essentially avant-garde artist to ever exist in any medium in some senses. For sure. So Prince obviously continued releasing albums with frequency until he died in 2016. I'm curious just very briefly, because I feel like we can't end the story without talking about that. How did all of that come to pass? I mean, we obviously don't know the inner workings of it, but what do we know about the end of Prince's life? So yeah, he died of a fentanyl overdose. Evidently, he was alone on an elevator at Paisley Park Studios where he lived and worked. He was found by paramedics eventually. He had struggled with a painkiller addiction after a hip replacement situation in 2010 from jumping off pianos for decades. Mm. After he passed, naturally, there were these amazing musical tribute performances from Bruno Mars and D'Angelo and Lenny Kravitz and Madonna. But it seems like he was in a great deal of pain, more than anyone realized. Physical pain. Yeah, physical pain. He had divorced his second wife some years after they were married in the 2000s. Believe she's currently married to Eric Benet, actually. Mm. I can't speak to what love he had in his life, but I mean, he was twice divorced. And I don't know if Jehovah's Witness, if they have some sort of edicts about sexual activity or celibacy or whatever, mm. but he wasn't really seen about town as the ladies' man that he was in the 80s with Vanity and Apollonia and Chili e and Jill Jones and whomever else. I don't know what his life was like beyond the studio and performances. Right. Well, he was always a man of great mystery, of course. That's very true. That was part of the <laughs> right. appeal. He was not even a reliable narrator around his own life a lot of times. I think that mystery is also part of the Prince 
Prince mythos in general, too. Yes, indeed. Like, what was Prince actually like? Do any of us really <laughs> exactly. know what this man was like in private? Not exactly. really. Yeah, yeah. One of the most famous people to ever exist, but we know so little about what he was actually like. Yes, yes. The mystique was real. And in a period when it doesn't exist anymore because of social media and Prince was not about that at all. Yeah. What I do remember is just what an event the death was. It was a national event. Yes. It was like the passing of a president or something like that. And I think just as I'm attempting to wind this series down and land on the importance of this man and his work, I remember where I was when I heard about it. It's one of those things. It's like Whitney. It's like Michael. When a figure of that magnitude passes, it hit the heart of almost everybody. Right. Yeah. I mean, I met Prince eight months before he passed away. Mm. I had gone out to Paisley Park. I was sort of summoned to speak to Joshua Welton who is probably the only person that ever produced Prince. He produced Hit and Run Part 1 or something. But anyway, it was ostensibly an interview with Joshua. And I spoke to Joshua for 10 minutes and then Prince walked in. Wow. And I talked to Prince for like four hours, right? Oh my God. That's actually why they asked me there. They just didn't want to tell me up front. Right. And then eight months later, he passed. So I was really blessed to be able to meet with him and to speak to him and to ask him every question I had since I was 12 years old. What was that like? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, he had his afro and he had his eyeliner and people always ask what did he smell like and i can't really say yeah. there was no pervading <laughs> lavender or chamomile or anything mm -hmm. it felt like a big brother or an uncle a cool uncle mm. prince had always been such a hero of mine and i maybe had shook his hand once in the 90s or something but shaking his hand and talking to him for four hours was two different things you know sure yeah i was able to play his piano i don't play great piano at all but i know some prince songs actually and just being able to be in studio b with him playing the cross that was amazing wow and he was very open he gave me a hug you always expect him to be media averse but he was extremely friendly i felt like we bonded wow which sounds weird to say no it didn't feel like he was just waiting for it to be over you know he invited me out to his car mm. he played me unreleased music on his car stereo wow oh my god you must have been tripping that was surreal <laughs> what was the most memorable thing he said to you wow i do remember him telling me that the beautiful ones was not written about the person that we thought it was written about in one of the prince biographies someone said that it was written about susanna melvoin who he was engaged with in the mid 1980s and you're not really supposed to ask prince about the past but somehow we were on the <laughs> subject anyway and he told me that no he had specifically written that song for the movie because there needed to be a counterpoint to what Morris Day was doing at that point in the movie and so he went home and he wrote the beautiful ones and came back in with it wow <laughs> it's uh, yeah I remember him telling me that he was funny as well, which I guess didn't really surprise me. No, he's a funny dude. I mean, a lot of his music is fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so he was yeah. very much like that. He had jokes. That is amazing. <laughs> is there a joke he told you that you remember in particular? I just remember him walking down the hall and him repeating in the voice of whoever had said that The Beautiful Ones was about something. He was like, yeah, this song's about me and this song's about Bob Seger or something. Some <laughs> shit he said. Because I think that some other biographer had said that Bob Seger was 
was responsible for him putting horns in his music. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of doing a voice and it was a cute little moment, you know? Wow. That is an incredible story. <laughs> I have a big smile just thinking about that. It's so wonderful. I mean, to have had that personal experience with him, to get personal access to someone with that level of mystique must have just been transformative. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've done a cover story on Michelle Obama in the past and Diana Ross, yeah. but meeting Prince, that's the one. He's in another universe. It's almost like meeting a Martian or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. I haven't met Janet Jackson. Yeah. I'm named after Miles Davis. I didn't get to meet him before he passed. But Prince, that was the one guy to talk to that I would have wanted to talk to. Mm, incredible. All right. So normally this would be the part of the conversation where we rank Prince in the pop pantheon, but that's a dumb conversation. Obviously, Prince is <laughs> tier one. There's no real debating that. Right. So I almost feel like that's a moot conversation that's boring. We know that Prince is tier one. Tier one and tippy top. I mean, one of the most important figures in music history. History, period. Forget even pop music, just music history, period. When I met him, I told him that he was the Beatles for my generation. Yes, 100%. <laughs> and he said, well, I have more albums than they do. Yeah, definitely a healthy sense of hubris in that man. Uh-huh. I guess my question is, and I know this is hard to say, so I just want you to kind of freestyle and whatever comes to you. We don't have to encapsulate this. We could do an entire episode on this one question, but just whatever you feel like needs to be said to land this series for us a little bit. What are the most important parts of what Prince did as a musician and as a pop star that affected the course of pop music. If you had to just pick maybe a couple examples of where we see Prince's legacy in everything that's come after him, what do you think are the most important things that the audience should walk away understanding as Prince innovations that have played out over the rest of pop history? Well, I would say that Prince's legacy is about artistic freedom. Mm. Like I said before, he advocated for artists to create their own systems for music distribution, create their own master recordings and all of that. But we see Prince in a neo-soul movement of the 1990s with Maxwell and D'Angelo and Lauren Hill and Erica Badu. Whenever I hear the Lindrum beat machine that he helped popularize in the 1980s, mm. it's been resurrected by artists like Justin Timberlake and whomever else. I hear Prince in that. In the super sexual lyrics of hip-hop stars, I hear Prince. I hear Prince in the successful concept albums of artists like Beyonce, where she can just sort of do a whole album about her marital strife with Jay-Z or the types of records that she makes, Lemonade and Renaissance and all of that. That's very Prince. Mm -hmm. His work ethic, for that matter. I'm sure Beyonce gets a lot of her work ethic from Prince. Amir from The Roots talks about how whenever he's up at five in the morning working on something, he wouldn't go to sleep because he knew that Prince was also awake (laughs) working on something. Mm. You know? And I felt that because as a writer, I work at night and Prince being my hero, whenever I'm working on something in the middle of the night and feel like going to sleep whatever, I'm like, well, you know, what would Prince do mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and then i move on to the next paragraph so yeah all of those things the work ethic the super sexual lyrics but also the conflict between sexuality and spirituality mm. the artistic freedom diddy has been in the news recently for giving the master recordings back to the original artists that were on bad boy and right. you know that was something that prince advocated for for 20 years taylor reed taking control of her master recordings through this re-release yes. project feels very indebted to many of the battles that Prince fought. Definitely, definitely. It's all of that. I think that's all beautifully said and so true. And the only thing that I would add is from my own perspective, as somebody that spends their whole life thinking about and consuming pop music and pop stars, to me, 
I think the most exciting thing about pop music is the way that it blends familiarity and accessibility and touching a wide swath of people with true eccentricity and personality. I think that the greatest pop music is when an artist can do both of those things or can walk that line between giving us something that feels familiar and warm and like it's speaking to us and speaking to humanity on a broad level and then also feels fascinating because it's loaded with that person's signature personality eccentricities quirks and artistic muse that they're following instinctually to me the best pop music walks that tightrope and I don't think that there's any better example of how to do that well over the course of a career in discography than what Prince did. I think Prince is the emblem of what that looks like in its most exciting form. Agreed. And getting to listen to this music and go through all of this music this time just solidified that for me. And I can't wait to spend the rest of my life combing through it because there's so much. <laughs> and even the stuff I'm familiar with, I unlock new aspects every time I listen to it. There's just so much to get into. And that's so fun. What an incredible thing to leave behind on this earth. He's a thrill in every sense of the word. And you could spend your entire life devoted to unpacking all of the little details and thrills that he left behind in an extraordinarily extensive and extremely fun to listen to body of material. Yes, yes, yes. So I think those are the things that I would just add to the legacy of Prince and what he means as a pop star that every other pop star can extrapolate, if not something artistic or aesthetic, at least an idea of how to effectively approach the business of making pop music. Yes, indeed. My last question for you is, what is an underrated Prince song from this period? Something that the audience probably isn't familiar with. I'm sure that there's 10 trillion things you could pick from to answer this question. But what is one you'd like to highlight to send the podcast out on? I'm going to go with Comeback. Comeback is the last song on The Truth that acoustic album that he recorded that was going to be its own album until certain things happened with the record company EMI. It is about the death of his son mm. without explicitly being about the death of his son, but the lyrics allude to a spirit that will return if you keep their memories in mind. And it's just really beautiful. And mm. one of my biggest maybe issues with Prince as his career went on was that he wasn't living enough of life to reflect that back in his lyrics. A lot of the songs are sort of these funk workouts. Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting a sense of what was really going on in his mind. Right. And this song, for me, it's like, yeah, this is heartfelt. This is something that he needed to get off his chest because you feel it. Mm -hmm. Listening to it, you receive it that way. And of course, it's a sad song, but it's a bit hopeful as well. Yeah. Because the spirit will come back. That's the whole title of the song. So yeah, I would say people should listen to the Truth album, period, and definitely come back. It's my choice. I love that. I actually love that you made that point because I do think that was something that I struggled with with some of the latter period music was a lack of vulnerability. There was just an impenetrable feeling to it. And and this song is really moving. And for an artist that is so mysterious, when you get that glimpse at the vulnerability, whether it's direct or indirect, it's incredibly powerful. And I think that's a really nice note because also Prince's spirit comes back to us and lives on through all of his incredible music and work that he left in this world. So it's a really good note, I think, for us to leave this series on. Miles Marshall Lewis, thank you so, so much for being here.
being on the show. It was my pleasure. This was a great time. Anytime I can speak for hours about Prince, it's a good time. Yeah, literally all three guests said the same thing when I concluded the episode. <laughs> they were just like, I love talking about Prince. I'll take any opportunity to talk about Prince. I love that. He inspires that passion. It's incredible. Indeed. Spirits come and spirits go. Some stick around for the after show. All right, so there you have it. That is our Prince trilogy in the can. Of course, Prince is a certified tier one icon. The judgment is rendered, not that I need to make that judgment. I want to say thank you so much to the fabulous Miles Marshall Lewis for being such an incredible guest. And of course, also to Dr. Elliot Powell and to Rich Juzwiak for being guests on our previous episodes. They made this series what it was. They're incredible. Thank you so much for their time and knowledge. Of course, thank you so much to Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. To PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Twitter and Instagram. We have merch available at poppantheonpod.com. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to gorgeous, gorgeous LA on September 29th. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.